Our primary reading this morning is from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but it is patient with you, not wanting anything to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away, and with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which of the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved? and the elements will melt with fire. But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. Therefore, beloved, while you are waiting for these things, strive to be found at peace without spot or blemish and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. The word of the Lord. So one of the many things I love uh, about y'all at Parkside is that you guys are smart. Uh, Sometimes... A little too smart, like when you like text in questions about like the syntax of specific Greek words, and and my Greek is nowhere near good enough. Uh, but also like last week, um, almost as soon as I was done about like talking about how we might be able to experience God in new ways, I started getting uh, questions from multiples of you, basically asking this, like, okay, decent point, but what do I do while I'm waiting? It's a fair question. Fortunately, the New Testament text for this second Sunday of Advent, the Peace Sunday, and yes, we did check this time so the candle is right, um, is about what we are supposed to do while we wait for God to show up. Now, if you remember from last week, Advent is designed for us to meditate on the nature of the waiting that happened in the first coming, the birth of God in Jesus Christ, and the current waiting of the second coming, the return of God in Jesus Christ. Last week, the prophet Isaiah expressed this sense of waiting that was fulfilled in the first coming. And this Sunday, our author of 2 Peter is expressing a waiting that will be fulfilled in the second coming. We most obviously see this declared in chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Now, There is a lot of intense, frightening imagery in our text today. And as much as I loved geeking out on all of it in my research this week, we don't have time to go down that rabbit hole. But for those of you who are concerned by it, I just want to point out that none of this fiery imagery is about punishment. None at all. Instead, the end of verse 10 tells us what it is about. It's about disclosing. It's about revealing the truth of everything. No one is burning in this fire. But I think, because we often get stressed out about this imagery, 
or we think we're just too sophisticated as modern people for this fiery stuff. I want to offer to you this morning perhaps a a, a new idea, maybe a challenging idea about the end of the world and apocalypses and all that. And even with this, I want to be maybe careful at how I say it because I know that some of you get instantly anxious about anything that the Bible has to say about the end of the world because typically it's been used to induce religious fear into you rather than spiritual comfort. So take a deep breath with me and hear me out, okay? All right, we ready? I think... Progressive Christians need to take apocalyptic passages like these more seriously. But probably not for the reason you think. Here's why. Normally, when I think that I need to take an apocalyptic passage seriously, what that means is I start trying to spot signs for the end of the world. Or, or I start asking myself like weird questions like, well, what would you do if Jesus is coming back next week? And I'm like, I, I don't know, like take a vacation or not waste my money on these Christmas presents? Like, I, am I supposed to have a really spiritual answer to this? But what if? We can take apocalyptic passages seriously in another, less anxious way. What if passages like these have the power to create a condensed frame of reference that can help guide me in my current priorities and choices, that can give me direction in my everyday waiting for God to show up? Here's what I mean. When I was in seminary, there was this phrase that I heard ad nauseum, and it was, stay on paradigm. Stay on paradigm, stay on paradigm, stay on paradigm. Okay, what's paradigm? The paradigm was the necessary classes in the necessary sequence that you needed to graduate within a prescribed frame of time. And the reason they beat this into our heads is because if you didn't focus on staying on paradigm, it was entirely reasonable that you could take classes and never actually graduate. And so I could be doing the seminary thing, I could be taking class after class, but without a frame of reference, without a paradigm, I could get lost along the way, never graduate, and seminary would take all my money, which they pretty much did anyway. The paradigm was created with the end in mind. And so I think, without taking seriously these passages about the second coming of Christ and the end of the world, we can fall into a similar problem. We, we know we want to graduate. That is, like we, we want to reach this place at the end of our lives that feels faithful and accomplished and well-lived, But sometimes, life can be a long time to live. And and if we don't know the spiritual paradigm, if we're not living with a clear understanding of the end in mind, then we can get lost in the waiting. But these apocalyptic passages have the capability of not just telling us how to live for the end of the world, but how to live today. In Christianity, the same disciplines and practices, the same paradigm, if they are spiritually sound, should work for both 
kinds of waiting. Waiting on the second coming of Christ, yes, but also waiting for God to show up in my life right now. Now, the context of why Peter is even mentioning the second coming of Christ is really interesting. Because Peter is giving an apologetic. He's giving a defense of the faith to encourage a congregation that is not only undergoing physical persecution, but is potentially getting picked off by other religious groups. The Epicureans, an ancient Greek form of atheism and a philosophy that was built around the pursuit of pleasure, has apparently been taking pleasure in harassing this little church. Oh, you're waiting for Jesus to return? Oh, that's so cute. Don't you think he should have been here by now? The author of 2 Peter speaks to this line of attack in chapter 3 and begins to engage with one of the Epicurean's strongest arguments against the existence of God, which basically points out how much good people experience a delay in justice. Bad people do bad things to good people and nothing bad seems to happen to the bad ones, right? At least not fast enough. And this is a fair objection. I have had some words with God in my own life about this observation. But so have the psalmists. And so have the prophets. This is not an uncommon place of wrestling with God. And yet our author wants his congregation and us, as we are waiting for God to show up, to realize two things about the nature and character of God. First, chapter 3, verse 8. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. So first, as you're waiting, it may be a helpful reminder to know that the way we experience time is limited to linear time space in a single dimension. And God is outside of these limitations. Time isn't even something that God is subjected to, but rather time is subjected to God. And I think this realization should give us at least a little humility when we talk about God's timing in our lives. On the other hand, this may feel something like a theological dodge, right? Kind of like when someone says, well, God's ways just aren't our ways. And it's like, okay, Christian Karen, what does that even mean, right? Because I only hear you say it every time you're like losing an argument. So to say God's timing isn't our timing, it is true. And philosophically speaking, it is a logical rebuttal to the Epicurean objection, but I don't know if it's the most satisfying answer, much less the only one. I think what the author says in verse 9 is even more applicable. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Isn't it interesting? That the author doesn't just say that God is patient with other people, but God is patient with who? You. You. Is it possible that I am, as I'm waiting on God, maybe God is waiting on me? 
Perhaps God is patiently waiting and inviting me to show up in a particular way before God chooses to act. And if that's a possibility, how might I view my waiting differently? Not only that, but the context into which our author of Peter is defending Christianity from its critics might shed a little bit of light on my own tendency to be critical of God. You see, typically when I'm waiting on God to do a specific thing, I have a tendency to mentally reduce God to the role that I functionally want God to perform. Here's what I mean. For example, if like the Epicureans, I want justice, I reduce God functionally to the role of judge. But also... If I want healing, I reduce God functionally to the role of healer. Or if I want financial success, I reduce God functionally to the role of provider. Now, if I realize I'm doing this, this is entirely normal. This is, this is very understandable. But look how our author of Peter, encountering the Epicurean objection to God, recalibrates my perspective You see, the Epicureans presumed that if God existed, God would primarily exist just to execute justice and punish the bad guys. That's why deities were around. That's why deities would exist, according to the Epicureans. They exist to be judges. And yet our author says then, hold up. Have you thought that God might have something more in store for the world than just being a judge? Have you thought it's possible that God might not only want to execute justice, but also extend mercy? So I think this is an important question for myself to ask. Is it possible that God wants to do something in my life other than my expressed request? And so maybe as you're waiting on healing. God wants to do something good in your life that has nothing to do with healing. Maybe if you're waiting on God for financial success, God wants to do something good in your life that has nothing to do with financial success. Y'all, the stories of Scripture not only show people waiting a long time to get what they wanted, but also show people waiting a long time and then getting something different than that they wanted. In our first reading, we we heard a section of Joseph's biography who lived 1,700 years before the birth of Jesus. And at this point in Joseph's life, he's been kidnapped, he's been enslaved, and now he's sitting in jail on a false accusation. So let's be clear. His prayers to God are in no way selfish. It is entirely reasonable that he wants out and so he can go home. And it looks like he's going to get that chance when he helps out the royal cupbearer. But then the cupbearer completely forgets him. And again, this is a very reasonable request to God that God would get him out of jail so he could go home. 
But instead, he stays in jail another two years before the right moment comes. And yet the thing is, the right moment is not a pardon so that he could leave Egypt and go home. The right moment, the the moment that God orchestrates ends up being a promotion to the second in command under Pharaoh to rule Egypt and ultimately save hundreds of thousands of lives from famine. Joseph not only had to wait a long time for God to show up, but it didn't even happen in the way that Joseph asked for. Instead, God planned for something better. And God not only planned for something better in Joseph's life, but God planned something better for millions of lives. So if this happened in such a dramatic way to Joseph, is it possible that God might want to do something maybe a little less dramatic, but still very valuable in your own life? Now, you might be asking yourself with all these diagnostic questions, okay, these are good things to ask, but okay, but what am I supposed to do, right? You're, you're the practical type. You want to stay on spiritual paradigm. Okay, here you go, verse 11. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons you ought to be leading lives of holiness and godliness? So our author of Peter says, in light of the second coming, I want you to do two things. Commit to leading one, lives of holiness, and two, lives of godliness. Now, If we were struggling, not being triggered about all the end of the world stuff, then you're certainly going to be freaked out when the pastor says, now you need to be holy and godly. But I have some good news. These words almost certainly don't mean what you've been told they mean. Starters, neither of these words mean that you should be a super religious person who doesn't smoke, drink, or chew, or associate with those who do. Okay, that, that is not the prescription. Some of you are like, I was taught that exact phrase as a child. <laughs> but if that's the case, right, then what do they mean? Well, godliness in the Christian context is actually a critique of religious piety. Yeah. It uses the Greek word that in the pagan religion meant go to the temples do rituals, make sacrifices, give money, practice outward signs of your faithfulness and goodness. But the Christian definition becomes something different. It became about practicing an inward awareness of God's faithfulness and goodness. It's a reverence about God that doesn't seek to change anyone's perception about you, how others look at you, but rather to change your perception about God and to be motivated by who God really is. That's godliness. And holiness, oh, it's almost as unconventional. Holiness literally means to be cut out, to be set 
apart. But you're not set apart just to sit there. That would be useless, right? You're not set apart to stand out as, as some religious weirdo. No, you're set apart for a mission. Specifically, a mission from God. Some of you heard the Chicago accent in there. But what's the mission? Verse 13. But in accordance with his promise, we wait for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. The mission of the Christian, of the church, is to manifest the kingdom of God to the world, ultimately culminating in the redemption and the renewal of all things to make a space where righteousness is at home. Being a Christian isn't about getting your ticket punched to some heavenly afterlife. It's about being set apart for the mission of God and doing whatever advances that mission. That's holiness. So the author of 2 Peter says, you want to know how to live as you wait on God in the return of Christ? Do you want to know how you wait on God for anything in your life? Have an outward mission that is animated by an inward awareness. When I do this, my waiting will never be wasted. God will be at work. But beyond not wasting your time, I believe God has something good in mind for us if we are faithful. Let's go to our last line of our reading, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, while you are waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace without spot or blemish and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Our author wants us to know that if I'm practicing holiness and godliness, that is, I have an outward mission of God that is animated by an inward awareness of God, that will produce a particular kind of spiritual fruit. It will produce peace. In the midst of my waiting, peace is the fruit of holiness and godliness. So maybe I don't know if God is wanting to do something else in my life. Maybe I don't know if God is waiting on me to show up in a certain kind of faithfulness before God acts. But even if I don't know if those possibilities are true, God offers me a practical path to experience peace as I wait. My waiting doesn't need to be wasted and it doesn't need to be anxious. Not only that, but God gives you an assurance that your waiting can always be used for your good. It's not to test you. It's not for your punishment. It's for your salvation. That was God's desire for Joseph. And that's God's desire for you. 
That is why God would be born, live, die, and rise from death. Every one of those steps required patience, not only of people, but also of God. Which is why even as we wait on the second coming, the first coming has shown us that the patience of our Lord is always to our benefit and never our harm. This is the good news that we are invited to trust today. So for this Advent, in your waiting, may you too experience a kind of peace that brings you into God's salvation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Colin. Uh, our folks really brought the heat. Mm-hmm. Thanks, guys. Um, this is going to be just about as hard as what Audre Claire just did. All right. All right. So with the knowledge that time is subject to God, how can our knowledge of that not lead us to also ending up feeling unbound in time and depressed as a result if we base our life on our beliefs that God is unbound to a linear sense of time? <laughs> All right. Can't just, I'm just going to put this in the category of cannot justify in 60 seconds, but I, I got a couple thoughts. One, one of the things that's been happening right with, with Marvel Universe, let me just go to Marvel Universe really quickly, um, is the whole multiverse thing. I find the multiverse thing really depressing, right? Because it just kind of like, it makes an absurdity of like all your choices and all your decisions because there's always a universe where like it doesn't happen or someone can interfere with it. And, and so I, I do find, though it can be daunting to think that God is outside of our, our, our linear time, I find comfort in it because it realizes that unlike say the multiverse where there's really no finality, there's no arbiter of all things, God being outside of time, at least I can trust that God has a, a unique specificity within our time if God is controlling that time and God is able to go in and out of it. Also, this is why we believe in the Holy Spirit and the incarnation, because these are moments where God does enter into time. So God is not completely divorced from our time. It's just that God is both outside and within at the same time. So it does give me some comfort and not despair to know that um, unlike the multiverse, God is ultimately uh, able to act in a level that like, I can't even conceive of. I feel like I'm going to have to go back and rewatch that question and answer just to wrap my head around all of that. So I'm sure that person will text another question in and be like equally hard. Yeah. All right. Good luck. All right. Okay. In second Peter three 13, it says we are waiting for a new heaven and earth. How do we know that there will be one or is this just an analogy? Okay. This is great. So, uh, we don't have time to do it today, but basically what Peter does is he takes the existing view of the universe and how the universe is supposed to end, kind of like the way which we would say, like, oh, there's a big bang, and then there's, um, you know, the universe is going out, it's going to a heat death. He borrows the science of that world, and he, he embraces it, and then he says, but hold up. All that's going to take place, but in the end, there will be a new heaven and a new earth that doesn't actually, in their world, they, they said that basically everything just like happened again and again, almost like in this like endless cycle. And he says, no, there will be finality and it will be a good finality, a new heaven and a new earth. And so he borrows the existing cosmology. He alters it to reaffirm the view that has existed um, for thousands of years within Judaism as well. And so he has a very strong view of the preserving of creation and the renewal of creation. So that is not a metaphor. It's actually part of his argument uh, when he's engaging with the Epicureans.
All right, last one. I'm still struggling with God being slow to give justice to the wicked. Can you give an example of a time when God was maybe slow to punish someone or a group of people who did something bad, but it was actually at the right time, especially something on a larger scale? Yeah, that's really hard. So, I, Okay, two thoughts on this. One, I think there are some interesting examples in history where you see like this kind of like rising evil that eventually almost like seems to self-destruct almost in these like almost miraculous ways. Like you think about, again, like Nazis are always a, an example. You're like, wow, like God prevented that from actually taking over the world. Or even you think about like Genghis Khan and that empire, like it took over like half the planet and it then just disintegrated. And so God seems to have this way of stopping evil before it becomes this overwhelming force that destroys the world. Um, Sometimes, again, that's so meta that I don't know if it gives comfort. But one thing I think is important to think about when we, when we read Second Peter is there are going to be places where we do not get justice in the time that we want. And that's why God is saying, I am going to bring ultimate justice eventually, and you can take comfort in that. But also, we have to, this is going to be hard, y'all, we have to look on this on ourselves and ask the question, how have I been complicit in injustice? How have I sinned against others? And why has God's justice not come upon me yet for those things? And so even as I'm wrestling with these big questions, and I should, I need to turn that back on me and say, is God extending mercy to me in order for me to confess and repent and make right those things that I've been complicit in? And that's a, that's a tough one to do, but I think it's necessary. Yeah, I think that's an excellent way of just like, let's just relish in the fact that we get to take advantage of God's mercy because I can guarantee there are people in this world that think that I am a horrible person. I've done horrible things and they're waiting for God to judge me and to spite me. So super glad that I've got that mercy and grace from them. Thank the Lord. If y'all have any questions or questions about the questions, Lord knows we could have questions about the questions. Mm -hmm. So feel free to text those in and Colin will answer them tomorrow on Facebook Live. Awesome, friends. Thank you very much, Sam.